Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, sir. I hope you are as well. I am. Uh, I was excited to hear you on WPTF radio last week. Uh, how did that interview go? It went really well. I enjoyed my time there and uh, enjoyed the people. So it was a lot of fun. Make sure that you're subscribed on uh, flatlining.net because we let you know about all of those interviews and we provide you the links to them in our weekly e-newsletter. So if you want to listen to that interview, just go to flatlining.net and go to our Friday pulse check from last week. And uh, you'll find the links to Ron's interview there. The, uh, you talk mostly about your new book and I think a little bit about what's going on in North Carolina too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a yep. lot, lot of interesting stuff going on in North Carolina. Not what we're talking about today, though, on the Flatlining Podcast. We're going to continue our discussion a little bit from last week's program where we were talking about uh, some policy proposals about how to reform healthcare here in the United States. This week, we're talking about two issues, one of which has been introduced and one of which comes from an opinion piece published in Real Clear Health. But we'll start with uh, the Smart Choices Act. And this has been introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who, if you recall, in the 2020 election during the Democratic primary, she was big into the Medicare for all, uh, just like most of the candidates were, with the exception of Joe Biden. And one of the things this does is it changes uh, and speeds up uh, the drug price negotiation provisions from the Inflation Reduction Act. And so let's take a step back, Ron, and talk a little bit about what those provisions were and um, and what the timeline looked like for those drugs. Yeah, so basically the provisions were um, a limited number of drugs. Uh, Medicare was allowed to, and I, I put this in air quotes, you know, uh, negotiate reimbursement um, for, uh, for Medicare recipients which would lower the cost for Medicare, et cetera. And I say negotiating air quotes because the government doesn't negotiate with anybody. I don't know anybody who's ever tried right. to negotiate <laughs> with the IRS yeah. or anybody. There's really not a negotiation. They will tell somebody what they're going to pay. Now, obviously, those companies could choose not to sell that drug um, at that price. So it's not like you know they're holding a gun to their head, but it's not really what we would normally think of as a two-party negotiation. Right. Um, and And – Senator Klobuchar's um, proposal would sort of expand that pretty dramatically. And in the Inflation Reduction Act, if I recall, it was limited to a, like a very small amount of drugs, and it yeah. wasn't going to be starting, I think, until 2026. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. And it yep. was So it was roughly 10 drugs a year, which, as we've discussed before, uh, that, that wasn't going to do much to... Um, really lower the cost of anything except for the people that are on those 10 drugs. Um, right. I know some of those very expensive ones, um, some of the pharmaceutical companies were concerned that they were going to be on the chopping block first. And that's why there's some pending litigation over the Inflation Reduction Act and those uh, provisions. So when we talk about, um, quote unquote, negotiating these drug prices, because this is something that, we, that we've heard a lot before, is either negotiating the drug prices or buying them um, from other countries, but that can have real serious consequences on their avail- availability here in the United States. Can, can you tell me a little bit about when we negotiate, quote unquote, drug prices, uh, be, be meaning Medicare and, and the drug companies, how that's going to affect their availability, how that might affect research and development? Yeah, and this is one of the concerns about any time 
the government artificially steps into a free market environment and either sets a floor or a ceiling on prices or tries to control that marketplace, you get some unintended consequences. Um, the potential here is if you push too hard on driving down drug costs and therefore the profits that those drug companies make, they may stop making those drugs or stop investing in um, research um, to, to uh, you know, to develop new drugs. There's already a calculus for the drug companies that they look at the potential cost of developing a new drug and then the, you know, the amount of people that would need that drug and what they could sell it for. It's like any other business. You know, um, an auto manufacturer wouldn't make a car that only two people would want to buy. Right. That doesn't make sense. Um, and so the more you start pushing down on the price, the more it changes that calculus. And what you could end up with is a drug company saying, well, I could probably develop a drug to, you know, to deal with this disease, but there aren't that many people who need this drug, who have that disease, and I wouldn't be able to make enough money at the end of this to, uh, you know, to cover my cost of, of development and the profit that I'm looking for. So I'm just not going to do it. Now, right. that being said, there's some of the people on the on the pharma side who are crying out that this will end all, you know, all um, development of drugs and all research, et cetera. And, and, you know, their world is not nearly as precarious as they want to portray it. I mean, there's right. still mm -hmm. massive profits there. Um, so both sides have some, you know, some not quite truth telling on what could happen or how bad the issue is. Um, my concern is, again, anytime you start messing with a marketplace, you could end up with some unintended consequences that would be very bad for the people that, you know, that need a new drug or need a, you know, a, a drug developed that's better than the one they're on. And I don't want to question the motives necessarily of these senators, because I think that they're they're on to, to a real problem that some people face. And that is that some for some people, drugs are very expensive and, and in some cases are unavailable because they can't afford them. And. It's, it's just going, we've talked about this before, having the federal government negotiate these prices is really going about it in, in the wrong way, we, we think, to, to make it more affordable. So what other options really are available short of the federal government demanding lower prices and forcing lower prices? Well, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the, it's the right problem, wrong solution, okay? Um, I, I think at one point, maybe in a podcast or in a book or something, I talked about, you know... Um, Rat poisoning will kill cancer. You know, the problem is it also kills the patient. So right. that's why we don't mm -hmm. use it. Um, you don't want to have the, the, the wrong solution to the right problem. There's definitely a problem with drug cost. My opinion, one of the things you could do is change the environment. Right now, for example, if I'm a drug company and I make a drug that is better, but only marginally better than, let's say, the drug I want to replace, pick a disease, MS, or, you know, um, uh, certain type of cancer, a CP, COPD, et cetera. If I can show that it's slightly clinically better, it's going to be approved and then it's going to be used. And I can actually charge a whole lot more money for that. Well, what if it was sort of reversed and, and it was dealt with like, let's say other products like laptop computers. Mm -hmm. Why have laptop computers gotten so much better and cheaper in real dollars than when they first got introduced. Because the companies know if I can build a better mousetrap, I will get the market share. Mm -hmm. So what if instead of incentivizing to make it slightly clinically better and a lot more expensive, a drug company could come out and say, look, I have a drug for, and I'll pick MS. 
And, and it for 90% of the people that, that have MS, my drug will work, and it will work really almost as well as the current drug or just as well. But I'm willing to sell it cheaper. And what if that system then gave that market share to that drug manufacturer? Now we'd have an incentive to try to do like what everything else does, laptops, etc. I make it better more value and and or cheaper, and I'm going to get market share. Our system is sort of on its uh, upside down right now in that situation. That would have a much larger impact, without all the unintended consequences, than you know this. We're going to quote unquote negotiate on drugs. The cost of drugs is at the heart of a of a new spat that is playing out in Congress. And I apologize for not throwing in this into the show notes, Ron. Uh, just because sure. it, it popped up as I was thinking about it, uh, between pharmacy benefit managers and the drug companies. And right now you're seeing a lot of finger pointing, uh, at least in my market, we're already seeing TV ads uh, pointing at, uh, for, paid for by the pharmacy benefit managers, pointing at the drug companies, and the drug companies pointing at the pharmacy benefit managers, saying the other guy is the reason why the drugs cost so much. Blame them, go after mm-hmm. Congress, go after them, call your congressman and, and tell them to, to go after either the drug company or the pharmacy benefit manager. Obviously, I, I saw a report, I think it was on uh, PBS News Weekend last week, where they uh, they were talking a little bit about this, and, and some experts seem to say, well, the blame's really on both sides right now. But does it lay more on one side than the other, do you think, Ron? Who, who has more of the share here of blame for high drug prices? Well, so a couple of things. One, I think definitely the blame's on both sides. You know, the, they're both contributing to the cost problem with drugs. No doubt about that. Now, and, and I'm not one who, you know, wants to just inherently defend, you know, one part of the healthcare industry. I try to look at it from a perspective of, okay, well, what's, you know, what do the facts point to? What does logic point to? Um, and I've said similar thing about insurance companies who I have issues with. The drug companies are doing exactly what they should do given the environment in the marketplace and set of rules. These are for-profit companies whose stock price funds people's retirements, their 401ks, etc. And if you're the CEO of a for-profit company, your job is to maximize your shareholders' investment, period, end of story, hard stop. If you do anything other than that, you can be thrown out by your shareholders. So in an environment where we've set about a set of rules where the drug companies can make more profits by making a slightly better drug, et cetera, that's what they should do, just like every other for-profit company. Okay. So I would say, you know, it's back to that old thing, don't hate the player, hate the game. Mm-hmm. The drug companies aren't doing anything wrong. They're following the rules of the game. Now, the pharmacy benefit managers, I think, have less... Um, solid ground to stand on because for the most part what they did was figured out there was a marketplace that they could inject themselves into and not really add much value but extract a fair amount of profit so uh, i think they've got less of a defense um, than the pharma companies now i will also say that they're doing what they're supposed to do they found a market they they're feeding their shareholders etc and the market is set up to allow them that. Um, so it, it's a little bit like, well, you know, if you don't even at least lock the front door of your house, you can't complain too bad when you get 
you know, robbed. Right. Um, it, you, you sort of let it happen. So, um, you know, I think there's a little more blame on the pharmacy benefit managers. And the last thing I would say on this is, but even if they went away, it still doesn't solve our problem. Mm -hmm. Even if you took all the profits from the PBMs out of the system, we still have a problem. So they're not the only villain and they're not the whole solution. Yeah. And it's because we've talked about before companies like GoodRx or Single Care, yeah. you know, that have uh, they've they've figured out a way to say, look, we, you can get your drug cheaper if you don't use your insurance and instead use our app. Uh, right. and, and it's interesting that we've come to that point that, you know, the insurance that was supposed to make certain things cheaper, more affordable um, is is uh, is being beaten out by by something else. Well, and that's a great example of why you can say that the PBMs don't add value. If right. they really added that much value, there's no way that GoodRx would exist. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that somebody can come in and go, tell you what, don't even use your benefit. I can get this drug cheaper for you. Yeah. Shows you that a bunch of people are lined up at the feed trough, taking, you know, money and profit out of a system to the point where it's cheaper just to have them not be there and pay the bill. Yep. There, That's that's mm -hmm. a perfect example of that. We'll have a link to the press release related to the Smart Prices Act, and then as well as an opinion piece published in Real Clear Health uh, criticizing the act, and we'll have a link to it as well, the, the act itself, in the show notes for this program uh, in uh, on this platform that you're listening on and at flatlining.net. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining Podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Ron, the second thing I want to talk about is, is an idea that I haven't heard much about until I read an opinion piece today by Marlene Wust-Smith, and she's a pediatrician and a, and a magazine publisher. Uh, and she wrote in Real Clear Health this week about reforming Medicare payments to eliminate, uh, from the best that I could tell, eliminate the place of service modifier. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because for all of us that work in healthcare, you know, and especially in healthcare billing and on the business side of things, we, we all know what that means. But for the average listener, the average patient, they probably have no idea what a place of service modifier is. So let's let's back up a little bit and, and talk about what that is and why it is in the uh, the coding system for Medicare. Yeah. So the the way it works is um, every everything a physician can do has a, a numeric value, a CPT code and numeric value, and that's how they get paid. So if you take a certain service and I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a, a, a orthopedic surgeon and I'm going to do a minor procedure in my office. Okay. That place of service is, there's a number for it is in my office. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get paid a certain amount of money. Now, part of that money is acknowledging that I'm paying for supplies. You know, I'm paying for the cost of this building, et cetera, rent, all that stuff. Right now, if I take that same procedure, and I go do it at a hospital or an ambulatory surgery center, I'm not paying for the supplies because they're gonna get billed by the hospital. I'm not paying for the rent, I'm not paying. So I get paid less, you know, that mm -hmm. they're gonna pay me less because I don't have as much cost into it. That all makes sense. It's very, very logical. Okay, what's happened here is hospitals figured out, and it's like a tax loophole. 
hospitals figured out that if they bought my practice, okay, and they, you know, called my office as part of their hospital campus, that then they can have me do the service there. I'll get paid less, but they can bill that same service that I used to do in my office a whole lot more because they get to add that hospital bill. That's mm -hmm. this place of service thing. And we saw it when hospitals started buying up cardiologists. You know, there were stories where somebody would say, well, two years ago when I had my stress test at my cardiologist's office, it was 180 bucks. And now it's in the same actual location, but because he's owned by a hospital, they get this site of service differential and they get to add a facility bill and now it's $1,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's what she's really attacking. She's saying you should get rid of that. The hospitals shouldn't be able to get a lot more money just because they bought the doctor and he's now, quote unquote, part of the hospital. Right. Nothing really changed. And in one way, she's absolutely right. Um, now, the other part of this, and there's no, you know, you can't mess around with something without looking for what are the other side effects of mm -hmm. it are hospitals are operating under significantly depressed margins right now. Medicare does not pay for the cost of hospitals, so they've got to cover their cost in other areas. We know that the average insurance payment to a hospital is 80% more than what Medicare would pay for the same thing. And if you start closing off their avenues of revenue, hospitals might start failing. And so whenever anybody talks about an expense reduction, you know, there are studies that say that, you know, this could save taxpayers $141 billion and could save Medicare beneficiaries $94 billion. Okay, what is one man's expense is another man's revenue. Right. Which that means we're taking, you know, almost $250 billion out of the hospital system. Well, what are they going to do to replace that? So it, the person who wrote the article is right. They're, this is being um, used inappropriately, like like what we get angry with tax loopholes. Mm -hmm. But if kids get rid of it, it doesn't mean that it isn't going to create another problem somewhere else. So let, let me ask you this, because sometimes we hear uh, this, this idea of uh, from uh, certain uh, political ideologues that, you know, labor or a particular thing adds value to a to a product i i don't subscribe to that um theory <laughs> i'll say it that way uh, in the nicest way possible but and i brought on our show notes in here a question that kind of relates to that and is that should services cost more at a hospital do you get more value um by we'll say actually at a hospital do you get more value actually at a hospital than you do an independent doctor's office and then as a follow-up question to that, do you get more value when your physician is owned by a hospital? So to the first question, the difficulty with saying should a service cost more at a hospital is it's it's almost impossible to sort of cherry pick. It's, it's similar to the argument of, well, why does an aspirin at a hospital cost 20 bucks, you know, when I can mm -hmm. buy it for two cents somewhere else? Well... The problem is, what are all the services that hospitals provide and have to provide that they don't get paid for? Or right. that they have to be available for that might not use? You know, they have to staff an emergency room, whether one person comes in there or 100 people. Uh, so, so in one respect, it's a little bit hard to sort of pick on one piece. Mm -hmm. um, now, should the cost of a service at a doctor's office go up just because the hospital bought them? No. I don't think so. I think that's a loophole that should be closed off, but you can't close it off now that you've allowed it without 
understanding what it might do to the whole system. And that's the problem with that is people don't want to talk about the fact that this whole thing has evolved and developed because Medicare is not paying their bills. They're not paying enough to cover their own costs. That's why it forces hospitals to cross-subsidize. So, um, you know, do things in a hospital inherently cost more when they happen else? Sure, because they work in an environment that increases their cost and that they've got to do that. Um, so they've got to collect it somewhere. Should a, uh, you know, a treadmill in a cardiologist's office cost a whole lot more just because they ended up selling to a hospital? No, of course not. Well, and you mentioned the whole Medicare not paying for everything in a hospital, but also there's the fact of you got to back up to why the the reason the physician, the independent practice wanted to sell to the hospital right. uh, to begin with. What problems were they having that it made more financial sense, more viable, it was more viable for them to sell to a to another institution. One other thing I got in there is just who benefits in these situations? You know, it's because you hear the sometimes the, the, the Medicare for all people talk about the greedy, greedy doctors. And then you hear mm-hmm. from other people that get the bill that don't understand um, exactly what we're talking about. It's one of the reasons we're talking about it today. So who benefits in these, in these situations? So, you know, whenever it's, whether it's a Medicare for all people or anybody else talk about the greedy, greedy doctor, the first, my first response is that absolutely is not at all supported by any of the data. Mm-hmm. Okay. Physician, average incomes have not kept up with inflation um, over multiple years, okay? So if physicians are greedy, they're not very good at it because you would see it in in income levels. The other thing I would point out is, you know, the conversion factor or the the dollar amount that Medicare uses to pay per unit of service. Best way to think about it is if, if doctors got paid an hourly rate you know, like some others, it's okay, well, what is that? What's that hourly rate or that minimum wage? That conversion factor over the last 20 years has gone down by 4.5%, and it's going to go down again next year. So they haven't gotten inflation from Medicare. Mm-hmm. They've gotten deflation yeah. over 20 years. Um, so that's you know, that's one thing to bring up. Now, the question on who benefits, well, if you get rid of this and you're able to really capture that $250 billion and they don't figure out a way to get it somewhere else. Well, obviously, the federal government benefits through reductions in the Medicare cost. That could help reduce our, our deficit problem. Um, Medicare beneficiaries might benefit. Definitely the insurance companies that are Medicare Advantage plans could benefit. Um, you know, all the people who are sort of paying that bill potentially could benefit. The people who get hurt are the hospitals themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep you posted on this uh, and whether anything comes of it. I haven't seen anything uh, related to this issue popping up in Congress, but we'll tell you about it here on the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, we're just about out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Enjoyed it as always. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a good week.